The scripture reading today comes from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mountain of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, two saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foe of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey in the coat and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sister Linda. Uh, Today we have the special treat of welcoming a guest preacher, uh, but someone that's Hardly a guest, part of the extended family and a familiar face to this community, Pastor Mike Park, who is one of the pastors at Grace Downtown. And thank you so much for setting aside time to be here. Uh, We're grateful not only to be blessed by his ministry, but to be able to share in this continuing friendship. Thanks so much, brother. Without further ado, come on up and let's welcome our brother, Mike Park. Right. Good morning. I'm going to do something very non-PCA. Is that okay? I'm going to forego the jacket this morning because it's hot. I used to think Duke would sweat up here because of the anointing, but apparently that is half truth. It is hot up here. Is it just me or is it you guys hot too? Okay, good. Not losing my mind. All right. Well, happy Palm Sunday, and uh, today, as Duke said in the beginning of the service, we join the Universal Church in celebrating Christ, our King, who enters Jerusalem for what is the most important week, not only of his life, but for all of our lives. And there's a lot here that we're going to unpack, and uh, we want to respond, as people did, but hopefully better by his grace so that we don't simply shout Hosanna, but that becomes the very posture of our hearts as we lean into him every day to say, you got to save me. I need help. Well, join me as we pray. Father, we thank you that we can come before you as your people to dive into your word, to know that even now you smile upon us, you delight in us, you meet us, you breathe your word You give us your spirit, you enliven our hearts with faith, 
and you remind us of this gospel and you help us to live into it. We need all of these things to happen. We are in need of you. So come, show up and show off, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Everyone loves a hero, someone that embodies the good, true, and beautiful. For example, like the first responders, healthcare workers, and educators who had to figure things out during the pandemic, civil rights leaders like MLK and Rosa Parks that led a movement to give voice to those in the margins, U.S. presidents like Washington who formed the nation and Lincoln who shaped it, Duke Wan. No, <laughs> you should be celebrating your pastor. He is a gift to you. And if you are into college basketball, a new hero was born last night. Lamont Butler from San Diego State. Now, if that means nothing to you, it's okay. And so in order to prepare for this sermon, I did a quick Google search on the greatest history, the greatest heroes in history. And I found names like Gandhi, Socrates, Caesar, Da Vinci, Jesus. It's not bad. A pretty good list of names, don't you think? But that last name has gotten a lot of press over the 2,000 years. And I think it's because of what he claimed to be. And the response, therefore, is very different than our response to, say, Caesar and da Vinci. Here in the passage that we just read, Jesus reminds us that he is not like any other heroes that came before and after, that he is indeed unique and different. And what we want to do as we look at Matthew 21 is to look at the identity of Jesus and our response. So let's look at those two things together. First, the Messianic King. The Messianic King. Matthew 21 begins the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry life, and uh, it began with the triumphal entry and would end with his death on the cross, burial in a borrowed tomb, and according to many eyewitnesses, resurrection from the grave. Up until this point in his earthly ministry, Jesus deliberately deliberately kept his messianic identity a secret. You may recall in Matthew chapter 16, after Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus told his disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. The reason for this messianic secret is not because Jesus never thought that he was the Messiah as a German theologian, Willem Reed espoused. The real reason was a practical one. Anonymity. He needed to do his work. And in order for him to go in and out of towns to preach the good news and to demonstrate that good news through miracles that he performed, he needed anonymity. But all that changed as Jesus began his final journey into Jerusalem. All the gospel writers at this point, they slow down and they describe in detail the events that took place during this final week. The triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the upper room discourse, the betrayal, the trial, his suffering, 
crucifixion and resurrection on the third day. It's not an exaggeration to say that these events were the culmination of the entire redemptive history. If you read throughout the Old Testament from the very beginning to the end of Malachi, you see the Old Testament pointing to the coming of this king. It would be marked by an incredible and unique virgin birth. And he will continue that unique life through perfect obedience in the way that he loves and cares and obeys the Father. And it would end with his death on the cross. This is everything that the Old Testament is pointing us to. Let me ask you, if you were kicking off the most important week of your life, and let's say you had clout, right, and a platform, you were somebody, right? What would you do? How would you start it? Maybe with an interview. I am Iron Man, right? Maybe with a party, a statement. Well, Jesus kicked off the most important week of his life, our most important week of our lives, by riding on a donkey. Does that sound a little off to you? Well, there was a good reason why he did what he did. By riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, Jesus presented himself as Israel's promised king, the Messiah. Let's take a look. The story goes on to say that as Jesus got close to Jerusalem, he ordered his disciples to get a donkey and a colt because he needed them. Since when does Jesus need anything? When he needed food, he multiplied bread and fish and fed thousands of people. When he needed to reach the other side of the sea, he decided to just walk there. When people were sick, he healed them. When people were oppressed by evil spirits, he cast them out. In fact, when he encountered a dead friend, he raised him from the dead and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Someone with that kind of power doesn't need anything. So why a donkey? And why now? The answer is in the prophecy. The prophecy that we read from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The original prophecy reads a bit differently than Matthew 21, 5, and it reads as follows. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So why a donkey and why now? Like I said, it was to declare himself as the king who comes to his people by fulfilling these very words. The crowd on that day knew exactly what was going on. They didn't need a footnote or a commentary to understand the theological significance of Jesus' action. 
In fact, later in Matthew chapter 26, when the news got to the religious establishment, they knew exactly what was going on. And so they asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of God? But some things do get lost in translation, as you know. Zechariah's prophecy clearly states that the king comes humble and offers peace. And yet, the Israelites on this first Palm Sunday believed that this would be the end of Rome. Why? We talk about it all the time. They believed in a political military messiah, one who would repeat the events of the Exodus story by defeating Israel's enemy and liberating them from their bondage. And there were good reasons for them to believe as such. If you go way back to Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve gave into the enemy's lie, God's promise to do good for his people was tied to a champion, one who will crush the head of the enemy, the serpent. And generations later, God said to David that his champion will be a king, a king like no other kings, and he will reign forever. Now, on a side note, People ask, who is God referring to in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Is it Solomon, David's immediate son, or is it someone else down the road? And the simple answer is yes, it is both. Often in the Old Testament, these prophecies speak at two different realities. First, the immediate, and second, at a distant future. For example, 2 Samuel 7:13 says, "He shall build a house for my name." The immediate fulfillment of that is Solomon when he built the temple, but ultimately the fulfillment is Jesus building the church as 1 Peter 2:4 and 5 says. And further confirming the military and political messianic figure is the Exodus story. The ten plagues, for example, weren't spiritual in nature only. I mean, God showed up and he flexed a little bit, can we say? And he demonstrated his power over the gods of Egypt in a very material way. Water to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, and the final one, death of firstborn children. You see why? Israel believed that their Messiah would be a political figure, a military hero, a true champion who will go out and defeat the great enemy as David defeated Goliath. But as they observed Jesus, his every move on this first Palm Sunday, things weren't adding up. Okay, we get the donkey, fine, we'll give you that, because when Solomon was announced as king, He didn't ride on a war horse. They gave him a donkey with the news that he is the next king of Israel. Okay, we'll give you that. But where's your army? How about the weapons? I mean, come on now. This is the very moment we've all been waiting for. The moment that the scripture has been pointing to. And yet you talk about humility and peace and this nonsense. What's going on? The answer, once again, is in Zechariah's prophecy. New Testament theologian R.T. France is helpful here. 
Matthew, as he quotes prophet Zechariah, omits the phrase righteous and having salvation. Other commentators would say that's because Matthew believed that that was coming Easter Sunday. Not today, not on Palm Sunday. But that phrase is there. And in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, we get the words vindicated and saved. Vindicated and saved. R.T. France continues and says, Jesus will bring peace, but not through violence and war, but by submitting himself to the will of his enemies. And God will vindicate and save him from death. In other words, God's champion, the eternal king, will face death and die. But that is not the end of the story. Because on the third day, God will save him and vindicate him fully and completely. And let's be honest. Resurrection, even for some of us believers, is a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? How can Christians believe, some say, in something that is so crazy and medically impossible? And this, I would say, is a larger discussion and should take place in the context of a faith community because sometimes the answer is not in a proposition form, but it's lived out in the communal sense. But I would encourage you to reach out to friends, believers, leaders here in this community and ask difficult questions. But let me throw out some things for you to consider. How do we believe in the resurrection? How do we know that it's true, that it happened? Well, everyone knew, first of all, where Jesus was buried. It was Joseph's tomb right down the street, third right, and it's the fourth one on your left. I mean, everybody knew. And all you needed to do to stop this madness was to produce the body and say, look, here he is. And this idea that somehow maybe the disciples snuck in in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness and stole Jesus' body is an impossibility. Why? Because the tomb, first of all, was sealed with a stone. I don't care how strong you are, like Yancey, you're not going to move that stone. You're going to need an army of Nancys to roll that stone away. But not only that, the stone was guarded by military personnel. Imagine a platoon, maybe not that big, but military folks with all their equipment standing outside knowing what's at stake. And lastly, there was a Roman imperial seal on it. And if you broke that, there were serious consequences. Then there is the eyewitness account thing. Hundreds of people who saw Jesus in the flesh and the changed lives. The very disciples who were scared and were in hiding, all of a sudden, bold, courageous, even in the face of death. And in fact, they died because of their testimony. But I think one of the strongest arguments for the resurrection is existential. 
even if you disagree that a person cannot come back from the dead, in your heart you wish it were true. The Bible says that's because God has put eternity in our hearts. We were made not only for this life, but for the world to come. And everything that is wrong with this world is an anomaly. It's not part of God's good design. And he will one day return to make all things new, and we will live into the life that was always meant for us. But we still, even here on this side of eternity, can hear echoes of that, can't we? And we long for that. One day, as I said, this Messiah King will return. But this time, he won't be on a donkey. He will be riding on a horse, a war horse, to establish justice, righteousness, and peace on earth. And when he returns... He will make every sad thing untrue. But today, he comes to you. He comes to us, humble, offering peace. There are a lot of times when my wife and I, as we have conversations about different things going on in the city, in our kids' schools, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, we think out loud, man, what would I, what would I pay for lasting peace? Right? When we go and rent a car, we're willing to pay that additional insurance because of peace of mind, right? We understand that there is a price to lasting peace. And let me ask you, what are you willing to pay for lasting inner peace? And the Bible says you don't have to because he did. He paid for it with his life. He tasted the bitterness of death. And he now gives you peace if you would but come to him and receive him. But it's not just peace. He offers you life. And this is life that one day will be in the fullest sense. But in the meantime, he gives you glimpses of, snapshots of life that is promised to you. He extends grace and mercy to you as you hit your low points. Living in a place of doubt and despair with questions. He comes to you not with judgment, but with grace and mercy to meet you in your humble state, to pick you up, to be your friend. And he gives you hope in the midst of your pain, your loss, your sorrow. He gives you victory over temptation and sin. And he helps you to walk into the life that he has purchased so that you can become the person that you read about in the scriptures. In fact, he promises to give you everything you need for life and for godliness. He offers himself, his very self, to you. If Jesus is not just a hero among many heroes, and he is in fact the Christ, the Messiah, then how should we respond? How should we respond to Christ who offers himself even today? Let's talk about that as we close. Our response. Matthew tells us in verse 8, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
the crowd responds to Jesus in a symbolic way that also has Old Testament ties. In 2 Kings 9, we read about a group of soldiers who laid their cloaks on the ground and declared Jehu king. There are two things worth noting about Jehu. First, he was an outsider. He was not a part of the royal establishment. Second, he was a reformer. God, through his prophet, called Jehu to fulfill the prophecy against the house of Ahab for its wickedness. And at this point, the crowd, as they see Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey and everything leading up to it, realize Jesus is like Jehu. And they begin to lay their cloaks on the ground and they declare Jesus as king. Why? Because Jesus was an outsider just like Jehu. Tribalism was a thing. It always has been. Remember when Nathaniel said, hey, here's a man who told me everything. Could this be the... Oh, are you kidding me? What good can come out of Nazareth? To the religious elites in Jerusalem, Jesus lacked the pedigree and the credentials to be taken seriously by the establishment. And second, he was a reformer. They expected him to ruffle some feathers and shake things up. I mean, this was like a prized fighter walking into a ring. And they knew that Jesus was going to do something. And they certainly expected Jesus to restore Israel politically by breaking the yoke of Roman slavery and oppression and all that. But they expected him to shake things up on the religious front as well. Right? Because when Jesus cleanses the temple, they seem pretty okay with it. And here at this point, as they declare him their king, they lay down their cloaks. They now sing, Hosanna, save us, save us. What does this mean? Now, there's a lot going on here as the crowd responds to Jesus. And one of the things that they do, in addition to laying their cloaks to honor him as king, uh, is uh, to quote from Psalm 118, which is a part of collection of songs known as the Hallel Psalms. And these songs were sung typically during a major festival in Jerusalem, like the Passover feast that they were entering into. But Psalm 118 is unique in that it is messianic in nature. Listen to these verses. 17 and 18, I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And it speaks to Jesus' resurrection. Later in verses 22 to 24, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Speaking to Jesus, the foundation, the head of the church, right? And later on, verses 25 to 26, Lord, save us. That's where we get the word Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. According to Psalm 118, this highly messianic psalm, this king will lead the festive procession of God's people into the holy city. 
And again, everything is leading up to this. The crowd undoubtedly believed that Jesus was fulfilling this psalm right before their eyes. And so they respond, Hosanna, save us now. In Luke's account, some of the Pharisees say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't you know this is heresy? And if you are a true teacher, a rabbi, then you should know better, right? You should be rejecting this to say, I am not he. I'm just a teacher. But what did Jesus say? If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, Let's read verse 10 because this is where things take a turn for the worst. You would think that the crowd with all the buzz and excitement, the Old Testament reference and Jesus being heralded as king would lead to something different. But that's not what we read in verses 10 and 11. It is so disappointing because they're so close to getting it, but they're still so far from getting it. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, verse 10, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this man? You see, all the events leading up until this point took place on the slopes of Mount Olive outside of the city. So there's a groundswell of excitement building out there, and it's getting closer and closer to the city until the people in the city who are not aware of Jesus and the movement and in particular not very fond of the northerners, the Galileans, they ask, who is this guy, right? What's all the fuss? What an opportunity. What an opportunity for the crowd to say, this is Jesus, the Messiah, the long-awaited king. But how do they respond Verse 11, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The prophet. Jesus had an issue with this back in Matthew 16 when he asked the disciples, who do they say I am? And Peter spoke up and said, well, I mean, you know, they think you're a prophet, one of them. And Jesus was not content with that answer because he's more than just a prophet. And yet here, in verse 11, the crowd responds by saying, no, he's, he's a prophet. You can see how a crowd could go from Hosanna to crucify him in a matter of days, can't you? You see, if Jesus is not who he says he is to you, then your life is going to mirror that of the crowd. And I borrow from C.S. Lewis here. If Jesus is a liar, then none of this stuff makes any sense. And if Jesus is a lunatic, then none of this stuff for sure makes any sense. But if Jesus is the Lord, then it makes all the difference in our lives, in this community in this city, and in this world. You see, if you claim to believe in the Messiah Jesus, God's champion, the long-awaited king, that you must respond by making him king over your life. What does this mean? It means that you live into the new life that he has given you. 
that you every day lean into this worship and say, Hosanna, save me, because there's a rival throne in my heart, and I don't want to give that up. And every day I want to live by my rules, and I want to make my kingdom great. And you actually are challenging that. What's with that, Jesus? Just give me that life insurance that will take me to heaven and all the good things, but leave me alone. No, if Jesus is the king, the Messiah, God's champion, that you must live into the new life of surrender, of worship and obedience to him, to that you walk in the freedom that he has purchased you, that you are forever humbled and grateful for the forgiveness of your sins, that every time you come and confess, he meets you gently with faithfulness and grace to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. It means that you glory in his grace rather than in your accomplishments. We do this all the time in Washington, don't we? We sort of keep tally of all the great things that got us here in the first place. And even the good things that we continue to do, and we sort of, that's right. No, if we really understand Jesus, then we must glory in the grace that is ours. Grace that meets us, grace that defines us, grace that sustains us until he returns. We must glory in that. It means that you become a friend, a faithful presence to those in the margins. True religion, James tells us, is not this. The book of James has nothing to say about corporate worship per se. And again, it's not to say that this is not important. We need this. This is one of the, I mean, the primary lifelines for the church. But James says, if you really understand the gospel, if you really know who Jesus is, and you cannot help but to care for the poor, the weak, the voiceless, the invisibles, those who live in the margins. We must be a friend to them. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then we must work hard for justice and mercy to become our calling. We cannot simply live in our silo and celebrate our little thing, accomplishments and safety and so on. No, we celebrate these good gifts, but we must engage in meaningful ways that will advance justice and mercy in this city. We go to dark places to be a light, to offer hope, offer peace. And I would say, lastly, what does it mean to respond to Jesus as king? Well, it means that you lean into this community to love and care for his people well. Let me challenge you, even as you think about some of the things that I listed, this is not a comprehensive list by any means. How are you responding to Jesus? He comes to you even today. He offers peace to you. He offers life. But you must respond. And your response cannot be on your own terms, in your own way, in your own time. No, you must respond by giving up all of yourself, 
Because to lose yourself is to truly find yourself in Christ. Then and only then can this body become the church community that he calls us to be so that we function like the bride of Christ here in this neighborhood to the people who need Jesus so badly, people who need peace and hope. And we can be an earthly foretaste of the coming glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that even today you come to us humble, gentle, as you offer all of yourself to us. We ask, Lord, that you would give us faith to respond. And we know that even when we fail to measure up to these things, Lord, you continue to come to us humble, full of grace, forgiveness. Lord, we want that to be a regular experience. And we want to learn and grow to become like our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.